0: Good morning, we uh, invited our staff to our home for a dinner on Wednesday evening, and we wanted to appreciate uh, our staff for all they went through during construction, and we thought a little fun was in order in light of all the hard work and seriousness. Some of you probably wonder, like, what do church people do when they want to let their hair down? Sign me up for that one. Well, we didn't want anybody to get hurt, so we eliminated soccer and football. And we thought a polite game of wiffle ball would be perfect. Right? Nobody would get hurt playing wiffle ball. Well, I was pitching, not because I wanted to, but because Pastor Bob Waldman was getting so roughed up. He asked for a relief pitcher. and I didn't fare much better. And Nick Schiavo, our former worship leader, was batting. <laughs> This is his last Sunday, so you can greet him as he goes. <laughs> Nick was batting and I was pitching. And I threw my pitch and he sent a blazing line drive right up the middle and implanted that plastic wiffle ball into my forehead. <laughs> just a few inches above my eye. And I went down like a sack of potatoes, not so much from pain, just shock. That Nick could hit it that hard. So much for nonviolent sports. Next year we're going to try croquet or badminton or something, or chess, something like that. I have been a Christ follower since 1976. And over the years, I have thought about ending or at least reframing that relationship and not taking Jesus quite as seriously. Those moments came, they weren't in a vacuum. Those moments came when I experienced disappointment. There was something I thought I would experience, something that was a part of the deal. Jesus, if I follow you, this will take place. And when those things didn't take place or didn't materialize in the time frame that I envisioned, I was tempted to reframe the relationship. You know, I just had my birthday, I turned 54 on Friday, and in looking back, I realized that those crucibles have happened in many segments of my life, those times of disappointment. They've happened with vocation, they've happened with family, they've happened in relation to personal productivity, and they've happened in relation to personal recognition. And each time a similar pattern emerged. First, despair. Second, doubt. Third, a kind of desperate hanging on while my faith is rebuilt on a more solid foundation. And then finally, four, believing that God is sufficient. My father is enough for everything in my life. Now something like this desire or temptation to reframe our relationship with Jesus is happening right here in John chapter 6. We've learned about these crowds Christ fed them the 5000 we 5000 men likely about 20 or 25,000 people. The crowds stuck around because they wanted to see what was going to happen next. They liked the miracles, they liked the action, they liked being near an endless food supply. Imagine it. Jesus was like having McDonald's you could walk to, and the food was always free. They thought Jesus would become their king, and he would deliver them from the evil Roman oppressors. But what we'll discover here in a moment is that Jesus challenged their assumptions. He challenged their desires. The result of all this? Jesus' movement went from 5,000 to 12. And even one of the 12 wasn't on his side. At the height of his popularity, Jesus dismantled his own movement. So this morning... We want to look at this passage, and this is going to be a little bit of a lengthy introduction this morning, but we're eventually going to look at John chapter 6, page 892, and we're going to ask this question, very simple question, will you go with the crowd, or will you stick with the twelve? That's the question we want to try to answer this morning. Let me invite you to pray. Father, we've had a chance to remember you through song, remember your character and your quality, and also the things that you've done in history. And we again want to tell you how thankful we are. We confess to you, Father, that we're often tempted to give up, or we're tempted to not take you quite as seriously. Uh, We're tempted to walk away. And there's things that happen that we don't often understand, disappointments that we face. We pray that today, well, today Father, we invite you to speak into those and that we'd experience uh, your presence here, your presence speaking to us, even in those disappointments. We thank you for Christ and his life given for us. We ask you this morning to reveal more of yourself and to uh, inspire us and cause us to see you more clearly. Lead our time, Father, by your Holy Spirit. Through Christ we pray. Amen. Amen. The uh, Brothers Karamazov, I want to ask for a show of how many have read that book considered by many to be the greatest novel ever written. Um, it's light reading. You can pick it up today and have it finished by the afternoon before your nap. Just kidding. Just kidding. It's in that Russian literature era phase, and it's a, uh, a, a very complicated. And um, you know, if you've ever studied Russian literature, you know basically nothing is an easy, light Sunday afternoon read. But this book is filled with religious themes. Fedor Dostoevsky was the author. It includes a very compelling argument for God's existence. I read the book many years ago. And in the middle of the book, one of the most famous pieces of literature is an imaginary scene called the Grand Inquisitor. Now, in doing my research this week, I ran across an article. And this author, I thought very deftly, connected this passage that we're going to study this morning with the Grand Inquisitor. Let me read you some segments of this article. In the chapter entitled The Grand Inquisitor, Fedor Dostoevsky imagines Jesus returning to 16th century Spain. But Jesus is not welcomed by church authorities. The Cardinal of Seville, head of the Inquisition, arrests and imprisons Jesus, condemning him to die. Why? Because the church has shifted course. It has decided to meet and to focus on instinctual human cravings rather than calling men to repentance. It has decided to bend its message to felt needs, Rather than calling forth the high, holy, and difficult freedom of faith working through love. Jesus' example and message are deemed too hard for weak souls. And the church has decided to make it easy. The grand inquisitor representing the voice of this misguided church interrogates Jesus in his prison cell. That's what's captured by this artist. The Inquisitor sides with the tempter. He sides with Satan. And the three questions the tempter put to Jesus in the wilderness centuries before. Remember that? Remember how Satan tempted Jesus in the wilderness before his ministry? And what the Inquisitor says is, Jesus, the church will give earthly bread instead of the bread of heaven. It will offer religious magic and miracles instead of faith in the word of God. It will exert temporal power and authority instead of serving the call to freedom. The Inquisitor says to Jesus, we have corrected your work. David Pallison, he's a biblical counselor. He has a PhD in the history of medicine and the history of psychiatry. He calls this the therapeutic gospel. And he defines therapeutic gospel this way it's a gospel structured to give people what they want, not to change what they want. And sadly to say, it's a gospel that pervades many churches, and it's a gospel that pervades the, uh, the, the, the talk show circuit. It forfeits the narrow, difficult road that brings deep, human flourishing and eternal joy. It seeks to make people feel better in the moment. Now, Pallison goes on to connect this story to today by asking the question, is there a contemporary therapeutic gospel? The instinctual needs of the 21st century, the instinctual cravings of today are far different than they were in the 1500s. In the 16th century, people's needs were for food and political stability. Today, we take those things for granted. Our needs are less basic. They're more luxurious. For 21st century Americans, we have a constant need to be entertained. We constantly need outside input to feel happy. We have a constant need for... Relentless action and movement. You know, I don't think wealth is as much the goal anymore, as much as experiences are. The meaning of life comes down to having good times with friends. The vision of one's life is having wide and varied experiences. Fulfillment in life is equated to completing my bucket list. That's what will make me happy. And indeed, happiness is the highest goal. Here's a quote I heard from one of the pastors of the country's largest church. She said this, Do good for your own self. Do good because God wants you to be happy. When you worship, you are not, and this was in a call to worship, when you worship, you are not doing it for God, but yourself. Because that's what makes God happy. Happiness becomes the highest goal. This is the therapeutic gospel. It offers a cure, but it skips over a sin-bearing Savior. Such a gospel massages. In other words, it it encourages, it awakens self-love. There is nothing in its inner logic to make you love God and love another person besides yourself. The therapeutic gospel may often mention the word Jesus. Indeed, says it has a relationship to Jesus. But Jesus has morphed into the meter of your needs, not the Savior of your sins. Indeed, the therapeutic gospel seeks to correct Jesus' work. Now, this is exactly what John chapter 6 is talking about. Different era, different century, different needs, but it's the same thing. Look with me now. At page 892, I'm going to start on verse 51. Now, this has been a very confusing passage to people. The passage is not confusing in itself, but it's confused people. And they've interpreted it uh, many, many different ways. So what I'd like to do is just simply walk through this verse by verse to the end of the chapter. I'll give just a little brief commentary and try to make some sense out of what, for many, is a... Confusing passage, okay? All right, let's start at verse 51. Jesus says this, I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. This bread, Jesus says, is different than the bread you ate from that small boy's lunch. This is more than a Big Mac. Way more. That fed your bodies. It satisfied your physical appetite. This bread feeds your spirit. And Jesus here begins to point to the cross. I will give my life sacrificially, not only for you, but also for the entire world. Look at the next verse. 52. The Jews then disputed among themselves, saying... How can this man give his flesh to eat? you see what's happening here? Because their whole drive was for fulfillment, gratification here and now. they interpreted jesus words through that prism, and they completely missed the meaning Jesus is speaking metaphorically. They take him. Literally. Now, we would expect Jesus to immediately correct the misunderstanding. We'd expect him to think, oh my goodness, they're, th- they think I'm talking about cannibalism. I've got to correct this quickly. He actually does the opposite. He presses the metaphor even harder. Look at the next verse. So Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh Of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. For my flesh is true food and my blood is true drink. Now, this is intentional, shocking language. And it points to his violent death. But because they take him literally, they are deeply bothered by it. Now, drinking blood is not, I don't think, too much of a common practice today. But back in the ancient world, drinking blood was a common practice, and it was often tied into and connected to uh, pagan ritual worship. And so the Jews in the Levitical law were prohibited from drinking blood. In their minds, for Jesus to say this, it was absolutely scandalous. Now, there's another point of offense in these verses. Jesus is saying belief in him is absolutely essential for reconciliation with God. There is no other way. The listening Jews here were religiously self-sufficient. What I mean by that is that they assumed that their history with the Jewish faith, their knowledge of the law, their connection to Moses, their ritual sacrifices, all of that was enough. They had enough of God. All they needed of God was through those things. Jesus is challenging that. Look at the next verse, 54. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood, abides in me, and I in him. As the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father, so whoever feeds on me, he will also live because of me. Now this word abides, it's going to show up again and again throughout the gospel of John. It is a favorite way for John to depict our connection to, our, our union With Christ, its most basic meaning is to stay with, to continue with, to reside with. And we gather from this that believing in Jesus is not merely a one-time decision, but rather an ongoing personal relationship. Look at the next verse. This is the bread that came down from heaven. Not like the bread the fathers ate and died. Whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. Jesus said these things in the synagogue as he taught at Capernaum. Now, Jesus has already offended them on several levels. But this might be the greatest offense right here. In verses 31 and 32 earlier, Jesus had already hinted at this idea. Namely, that he is greater than the bread Moses gave. And by implication, what? That he indeed himself is greater than Moses. The bread, you remember, that was the manna. That manna sustained the Jews for 40 years as they wandered through the wilderness. But it was limited. It physically gratified But it did not produce life. It did not produce eternal life. Now, you have to think like a Jew thinks here in this age. Moses was their identity. Moses was their national hero. He was their source of pride. He was their point of religious self-sufficiency. He was the one on whom they had pinned all their hopes. They trusted in Moses. That's what their coin would have said. We trust in Moses. And for this itinerant preacher, yeah, he did some miracles and he fed us, but for this itinerant preacher from Nazareth to say he was greater than Moses, greater than our national hero, this may be the worst offense of all. Ray Rice was a famous football player for the Baltimore Ravens, and he has been suspended indefinitely for domestic abuse. It's a sports story that became a national news story. You may not have read this, but this this weekend an additional story broke alleging that the very top management of the Baltimore Ravens sought to protect Ray Rice. That they rallied around Ray Rice and sought to protect him by pressuring other individuals and seeking to conceal damning evidence and this was the ceo and the president and the gm now all of these individuals what makes them culpable or vulnerable makes them vulnerable only time will indicate if that's this allegation is true but what makes them vulnerable is all of their strong motives to rally around and protect a man who slugged and hit his wife he was the face of the franchise He had been a model citizen. He was needed, he was vital for a successful season. He was needed to sell tickets. Indeed, they had their hopes pinned on Ray Rice. Now, I'm not likening Ray Rice to Moses. But here's what I'm saying. The point is, is that we react to and we overprotect those whom we place our faith in those who are a part of our identity, those who we believe are critical to our success, and when they are threatened, we push back, and maybe we don't see the evidence, or maybe we don't see what is right quite as clearly. Indeed, for these men and women, their rigid mindset, their narrow views, blinded them to the witness of God, the evidence of God that was right before their very eyes. Look at the next verse, verse 60. Now we get to see how the disciples respond to this. When many of his disciples heard it, they said, This is a hard saying. This is hard. I mean, who can put up with this? Who can listen to this? Now, these disciples, they're not the crowd, nor are they the twelve. This is a middle layer of people who were followers of Jesus. That's all a disciple means. They were learner followers. And they were intrigued by Jesus. They were curious about Jesus. And they began to follow him. Look at the next verse. But Jesus, knowing in himself that his disciples were grumbling about this, said to them, Do you take offense at this? He goes right, right for the juggler. Do you take offense at this? then what if you were able to see the Son of Man ascending to where He was before? Now, what does that mean? Here's what I think He's saying. Jesus is saying, if you are offended by these previous things, how much more will you be offended? How much more will you misunderstand when you see that my journey of ascension goes through the path of what? Yeah, the journey of my ascension goes through the path of the cross. What if you could see the cross? How offended would you be to see the man that you want to make a king dying naked, hanging on a cross as a crucified criminal, treated worse than an animal? That this would be the path to Jesus' glory shows how upside down the way of Christ is. And why they missed the kingdom and why many Americans missed the kingdom and why some of us in this room missed the kingdom. They, for their part, they idolized strength, power, status, human applause. Jesus embraced weakness, emptying oneself for the other and the applause of heaven. Jesus embraced a value that was captured in the line of an old hymn that went like this. Men heed thee, love thee, praise thee not. The master praises what are men. Look at the next verse. Verse 63. Jesus goes on and says, It is a spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. The words I have spoken to you are spirit and life. Jesus spoke of his ascension. And what happened after Jesus ascended? What happened next? He gave the Spirit. Jesus now refers to the Spirit. The Spirit is life-giving. He is the source of how we reclaim our lives. The Holy Spirit, he will make effective the words and the vision of Christ. The Holy Spirit is the key to helping you and me continue with, stay with, abide with Christ. The Holy Spirit is the point of union with God. Making the power of God, making the resources of God available to us. The flesh, the gratification of physical appetites, the here and now, finding your identity in a man or a woman, or a political system, or a religious system, looking for a miracle worker, none of that is any help in finding life. Now look at the next verse, 64. But there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus knew from the beginning who those were who did not believe, and who it was who would betray him. And he said these words that's why I told you that no one can come to me, no one, unless it is granted to him by the Father. Now, for some reason, Judas enters into the dialogue. We'll just touch on that in a moment. But remember, this audience thought they had God all figured out, it was a matter of a few practices growing up in the right part of the world, reading the right books. We've got God figured out. But look at how Jesus shatters, he wrecks their religious self-sufficiency, the sense of being full of themselves religiously. He shatters it by saying that no one can enter into a relationship with Jesus apart from what? Apart from the sovereignty of God. Apart from God's sovereignty, nobody can enter into a relationship with me. According to verse 44, it is God who does the initiating. It is God who creates the awareness. It is God who creates the thirst for real life. This was a slap in the face to all of those who figured they had God on a leash. Or they somehow held God in debt. themselves, had to quote famous cleric here, Bob Dylan, in a song, When You're Going to Wake Up. He said these very insightful words. You think he's just an errand boy to satisfy your wandering desires. Look at the next verse. Verse 66. After this, many of the disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. So Jesus says, he turns to the 12, 12 disciples, the apostles. Do you want to go away as well? Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have words of eternal life. And we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Jesus' ministry had been exploding. There was an excited base of followers I'm sure the 12 were all jazzed up about it. And then they went back to 12 people. (laughs) Just how things had started. From 5,000 overnight to 12. Peter, as he did traditionally, spoke for the group. And says, where else can we go, Jesus? Who else will satisfy us? Notice... Here's how the writer records Peter as saying, you hold the words to eternal life. And I think that eternal life is said in contrast to those who are so fixed on getting their physical, immediate needs gratified. Peter sees there's something that God can do in my life that will last, that's permanent. I think Peter is saying to Jesus that even, I think he's beginning to recognize, even though this life... May not turn out as we hope, even though we'll face disappointment, we'll still follow you. And while Peter, I don't think he understood fully the faith he was declaring, the language here, the, the, the structure of the text indicates this to be a settled and firm decision. Genuine faith was planted in his soul. Look at the next next verse. Verse 70. Jesus answered them. Did I not choose you, the twelve? And yet one of you is a devil. He spoke of Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, for he, one of the twelve, was going to betray him. Now, why is he, what's he saying here? How does, this, how does all this fit into what's been communicated? Keep in mind here, the disciples have just witnessed a mass exodus. They've seen everything about this movement come to a screeching halt. John Piper points out that all throughout this chapter, we see resistance to Jesus increasing. Verse 41, they're grumbling. In verse 52, they are disputing and questioning. In verse 60, uh, it's a hard saying. Who can listen to it? In verse 64, there are some who do not believe in verse 66, many of the disciples walked away. In verse 70, not only that, not only all of that, in verse 70, one of the inner circle is a betrayer, and is a devil. Piper goes on and makes this, I think, really astute comment. It just flat out looks like the devil's winning. Just flat out looks like we're losing, and the devil indeed is winning. It looks as if the devil, or take him out of it, it looks as if men are able to frustrate, to stop, to thwart the purposes and the plans of God. And Jesus wanted his disciples to know in that day, in the same way he wants us to know today when it feels like the devil is winning. He wants us to rest assured he is sovereign. He is in charge. Indeed, Jesus, who chose Judas? Who chose him? Christ chose him. In his own sovereignty, he was chosen. God is in control. Satan nor man can upend the purposes of God. In the end, God will triumph. God will overcome. I think that's what Christ was giving a vision to his disciples. And it's the same kind of vision that Christ desires to give to us today in our own times. Whether you're concerned about the resistance from our culture. Or whether you're just struggling with sin in your own life. And how hard it is. How difficult it can be sometimes. To walk the pathway of holiness. To become like Christ. It's a good message to remember. It's the Holy Spirit that gives life. It is the Holy Spirit who empowers us to stick with Jesus when the crowd walks. When the crowd walks away, when your friends walk away, it is the Holy Spirit who gives you power to stick with Jesus. And he will give you that power, and he will cause in you, he will change your desires. And this is what he's changing them to. He's changing your desires to want him above everything else and to want him above everybody else. Go back to the Grand Inquisitor for a moment. The Grand Inquisitor was very tender-hearted and very sympathetic to people's needs. And he was sensitive to the difficulty of anyone changing. But the Grand Inquisitor proved to be what in the end? He proved to be a monster in the end. You see, when we put happiness and self-pleasure first in our lives, what happens? You might be a kind person externally. You might seem sympathetic. You might seem tender. But if happiness and self-pleasure is your highest goal, what would you do when someone challenges that, when someone gets in your way? The kindest people, the most tender-hearted people become violent when someone gets in the way of their pleasure, and of their happiness. Jesus fed hungry people bread. He, was, he had a heart. He was compassionate. He fed hungry people bread. Yet more significantly, he offered his broken body as the bread of eternal life. And so in the end, we're left with two pictures of Jesus. Indeed, two different gospels, a therapeutic gospel and a gospel that is unquestionably clear from the stories and the accounts of these first century eyewitnesses. And the question throughout our lives as we face disappointments, as we struggle with wrong desires, as the things that we want to immediately gratify us don't happen, as the deal we struck with Jesus don't, doesn't materialize. We're left with that question, which Jesus will we follow? Which Christ will we follow? Will it be one who massages self-love? Or will it be one who sets you free to a truly new life? One who has the power to regenerate and to remake you. Not just some strange, mysterious entity inside of you, but remaking you through the power of Christ. He's regenerating your life, making you different, making you a better husband, a better father, a better wife, a better friend, a better employee, a more empowered servant in this church and in this community and more motivated and more effective to be a part of the great commission and the expansion of God's kingdom around the world. That's what He's changing you for. and He's changing you. Through the power of Christ and the power of the Holy Spirit. But no therapeutic Jesus can do that. No therapeutic gospel can do that. Only the Christ that stands alone, the Christ of these gospels. He will turn your desires upside down and he will free you to serve, free you to give away your life to others, and free you to love. Which Jesus will you follow? Which Jesus will you preach? And we stick with him. We stick with the true Christ when the crowds walk away. Pray with me. Father, thank you for these words of Jesus and help us to think about them and digest them and to feed on them. And um, Father, you've given us uh, a meal today, a spiritual meal that can satisfy our souls unlike anything else in this world. And I pray that we would feed on you, Christ, and we'd we'd open up our spirits to you, let you speak to us, let you satisfy us. We want to give back, Father, to you now and allow your spirit to continue to work in our lives in this next moment of our service as we pray and sing and give our offering, Lord, to you. Might might we continue to allow you to minister to us. And might we, God, be more capable, more willing, more empowered to minister to one another. Indeed, to give our lives away. God, to love you and to love one another with a new vision and a new heart because you're remaking us into your image, the image of Jesus Christ. Thank you. Continue to lead us now, Father. In Christ's name, amen. Amen. We'll take our offering here during this next song. And as I pray, this is our opportunity to continue to think. Continue to let the word penetrate us. Continue to let it read us. And our offering, the songs, the prayers is our response back to him. If you have filled out that Connect card, some way we can serve you, you can throw that in the basket as well. the end of the service, um, members of our prayer team, pastors will be here If we can pray for you, if we can minister to you in some way, come on up. And uh, we'd be happy to pray, to talk, and uh, find a way to bring more of Christ into your world.